Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. As always, uh, we like to open uh, our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. We ask that uh, you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think uh, may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. We also ask that you like and or share uh, our Surety Today posts on social media platforms. And, um, you know, when you do that, of course, our posts, uh, it lets uh, the Surety folks uh, that you're connected with see and, and so they can join in. Remember, you can listen to any one or all of our prior 75 episodes uh, anytime, anywhere from uh, any one of our multiple platforms on our uh, Surety Today page on our website at WCSLaw.com. Uh, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for Surety Today uh, and, and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. Uh, as of today, we had just over 8,000 downloads of our podcast, so um, doing, doing pretty good. As always, uh, we've muted the line uh, during the presentation uh, to avoid any background noise. And then we'll uh, unmute the line at the end for any questions. So today uh, we're going to discuss uh, the statutes of repose. Uh, we'll talk about you know what they are, their history and purpose, the differences between statutes of limitations and statutes of repose, when they might apply, and some potential issues relating to their application. The statute of repose can provide a defense to a surety in the right circumstances. In fact, I have a matter that's uh, currently pending where the statute of repose is involved. So what is the statute of repose? It's, it's a, the general definition of it is a statute of repose is designed to bar actions after a specified period of time has run from the occurrence of a specified event other than the injury which gives rise to the claim. Statutes of repose have been described as, uh, quote, an unyielding and absolute barrier, unquote, to limit potential liability. A statute of repose constitutes a substantive definition of rights, while a statute of limitations provides only a procedural limitation. Importantly, the time of the occurrence or discovery of the plaintiff's injury is not a factor in the operation of the statute of repose, as we'll discuss in a, in a few minutes. So <clears throat> the statute of limitations and statutes of repose both are uh, you know, mechanisms used to limit the temporal extent or duration of liability for various acts. Both types of statutes can operate to bar a plaintiff's suit, and in each instance, time is a critical factor. There's a, a considerable common ground in the policies that underlie the two types of statutes, but the time periods specified are measured from different points and the statutes uh, seek to attain different purposes and objectives. 
uh, which we'll talk about. Specifically, though, a, a statute of limitations ordinarily creates a time limit for suing in a, in a civil case based on the date when the claim accrued. A statute of repose, in contrast, puts an outer limit on the right to bring a civil action. That limit is not measured from the date on which the claim accrues. While statutes of limitation and statutes of repose both encourage plaintiffs to bring actions in a timely manner and for many of the same policy reasons, the emphasis is different. Statutes of repose affect a legislative judgment that a defendant should be free from liability after the legislatively determined period of time. A statute of repose is not related to the accrual of any cause of action. Rather, it mandates that there shall be no cause of action beyond a certain point, even if no cause of action has yet accrued. Thus, a statute of repose can prohibit a cause of action from even coming into existence. As noted, while there are some similarities between a statute of limitations and a statute of repose, there are many significant distinctions. So let's spend some time uh, here at the outset reviewing the nature of the statutes of limitation and then uh, look at the nature of statutes of repose and the differences between the two. So focusing on the statute of limitations for a few minutes here, statutes of limitations set a prescribed time in which a plaintiff must file a complaint after a cause of action accrues. If a plaintiff does not file a complaint within the time period, the complaint could be dismissed regardless of the underlying merit of the suit. There are several policy reasons behind statutes of limitations. First, they serve to provide a, a sense of security in business and planning by assuring people that they will not be subject to liability after the applicable limitations period has expired. Second, limitations serve to protect defendants from stale claims and the disadvantage of the passage of time on a person's ability to defend themselves. The more time that passes, of course, the more likely it will be that documents and evidence will go missing or witnesses may die or disappear or their memories may fade. So the statute of limitations is designed to address that. Third is to conserve judicial resources and increase judicial efficiency by protecting the courts from having to, to deal with and hear stale claims when the court's time could be better spent on more recent disputes. There's a, a sort of an underlying assumption that stale claims uh, are more likely to be groundless or inconsequential because of the passage of time, right? If you've got a, an important, uh, expensive claim, you're going you're gonna to bring it. You're not going to wait on it and do some, you know, and let time pass by. Fourth, the fourth policy reason for statutes of limitations is that um, they are justified as punishment. They're punishment to plaintiffs who sleep on their rights for an unreasonable period of time. Thus, the plaintiff who delays a suit beyond a certain period deserves to be penalized for allowing their claim to go stale. Plaintiffs' delay in filing suit increases the chances that justice will be frustrated and prolongs the defendant's fear of perpetual liability. As a result, the limitations period serves as an incentive to the dilatory plaintiff to file suit in a timely manner. A statute of limitations is uh, a procedural device that operates as a defense to limit the remedy available uh, from an existing cause of action. Limitations uh, bars are, it bars the remedy. 
However, it does not extinguish the underlying obligation. It does not determine the underlying merits of the claim, but merely cuts off the right to file suit on that claim. So a good example of this could be found where a party uh, may not be able to affirmatively sue on a claim because of limitations, but it could use the same basis for the suit as a set off to a claim against it. So, you know, the, the, the basis or justification for the suit, while it can't be brought as a cause of action in court, it's, it still can be used as a defense. The underlying obligation still exists. It just can't be affirmatively asserted. So statutes of limitations are um, an affirmative defense in most jurisdictions that can be waived if they are not timely asserted. They may also be told under various circumstances. Uh, so in sum, uh, a statute of limitations is invoked after an injury has already occurred and a claim has accrued, and it sets a limit on how long a plaintiff has to seek a legal remedy for that claim. The time limitation set for filing a claim is simply a, a procedural device that operates as a defense to limit the remedy uh, available for the cause of action. Now let's look at the statutes of repose. Unlike limitation, statutes of repose are substantive. They're not procedural. They're substantive grants of immunity and create a substantive right. As noted, statutes of repose can bar a plaintiff from bringing suit before the plaintiff is even injured or aware of their injury if the repose period has run. Because of the, the harsh effect of a statute of repose, legislatures tend to make the time limitations contained in such statutes uh, a little bit longer than statutes of limitations. So most are typically between six and 10 years. Unlike limitations, which extinguish the remedy for enforcing a right, but not the right itself, a statute of repose terminates the cause of action entirely. One court observed, quote, if the action is not brought within the specified period, the plaintiff literally has no cause of action. The harm that has been done is damnum absque injuria, a wrong for which the law affords no redress. If the element of time within which the claim must be brought cannot be satisfied, the claim simply no longer exists. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in, in addressing the nature uh, of, of statutes of repose and limitations uh, stated the following, quote, statutes of limitations are motivated by considerations of fairness to defendants and are intended to encourage prompt resolution of disputes by providing a simple procedural mechanism to dispose of stale claims. Statutes of repose are based on considerations of the economic best interests of the public as a whole and are substantive grants of immunity based on a legislative balance of the respective rights of potential plaintiffs and defendants struck by determining a time limit beyond which liability no longer exists. As noted earlier, statutes of limitations begin to run from the time of an injurious occurrence or discovery of the same, whereas uh, statutes of repose run for a statutorily determined period of time after a definitely established event, a, a trigger that is independent of any injury or discovery of the injury. As one court explained, the repose statute shelters legislatively designated groups from property and personal injury actions after a period of time has elapsed and is unrelated to when an accident or discovery of damages occurs. The well-recognized purpose of the statute of repose is to extinguish the prospect of liability and protect those in the construction industry from being hauled into court 
by reason of latent defects that did not become manifest until years after completion of the construction. So in, in, in most jurisdictions, you have limitations and repose statutes uh, uh, existing together. So how do they, you know, how do they interact? A plaintiff must typically satisfy the time limits of both the applicable statute of limitations and the statute of repose in order to file suit. So, for, for example, if a cause of action arises in year three and the applicable limitations period is three years from discovery of that claim, then the case must be filed before year six, even though the statute of repose is 10 years. As a general rule, the repose period provides no refuge for claimants whose causes of action during the repose period uh, accrue uh, up to that up to a point. So th things can get interesting if the cause of action arises near the end of the repose period. For example, if the cause of action arises in year nine and the repose period is 10 years, the claimant would only have one year in which to file its claim, even if the limitations period was three years. In theory, a cause of action could accrue on the 364th day of year nine, and a claimant would have to then immediately file suit to be within the 10-year repose period. Now, some of the, the statutes uh, of repose specifically uh, address this type of issue and grant additional time under certain circumstances where the cause of action becomes known near the repose deadline. So when you're dealing with these statutes, you gotta look for that uh, to see if there's any extensions there. But but the repose period just it doesn't give extra time. It's it's just it's the running the running time period until the bar. So if you've got a claim within that time period, you've got to meet the normal statutes of limitations. Uh, after that time period has run, it doesn't matter. Your claim is barred. The claim doesn't exist. So the question arises then: Can the repose period be told? In other words, if the the ten year period in a statute of repose has started. Is there an event or circumstances which could stop or toll the repose period uh, for some period of time? And, and we've seen this in the surety world with, uh, you know, the equitable tolling where a claimant says, well, they, they promised they were going to pay my claim, so I, I didn't file suit, you know, that kind of thing. So the question is, does that apply in a statute of repose uh, scenario? So the Fourth Circuit has observed that because the statute of repose is used to determine whether a claim can, can accrue and not whether an accrued claim may be pursued, the same reasoning for the tolling of statutes of limitations does not exist. And the statute of repose, quote, cannot be tolled for any reason, unquote. Thus, unlike a statute of limitations, which may be tolled in order to prevent injustice or on grounds of equity, a statute of repose is typically not tolled because to do so would upset the economic balance struck by the legislative body. It, it has been stated, quote, where the court, were the court to toll the statute of repose, it would essentially annul the carefully balanced legislation, leaving open the possibility that a claim would accrue into perpetuity, unquote. Indeed, the, um, the Maryland federal court has stated that statutes of repose, unlike statutes of limitations, are not uh, even tolled by a defendant's fraudulent concealment of the cause of a plaintiff's injury. So that's pretty, pretty dramatic. Even, even the fraudulent concealment won't toll the statute of repose. Uh, so next, the question is, you know, that has been repeatedly raised is whether these statutes of repose are even constitutional. So while, while a handful of courts have struck down repose statutes on constitutional grounds, the majority of courts have upheld such statutes. Some states 
uh, have declared the repose statutes unconstitutional based on various theories, including due process or equal protection clauses in their state constitutions. Uh, these courts essentially, you know, rest their opinions on the idea that the, the right to recover for personal injury is an important substantive right. Thus, the uh, legislatures uh, cannot deprive their citizens of the right to be heard in court on mere economic grounds, is, is what these courts will say. But on the other hand, again, the, the majority of courts that, that uphold the constitutionality of the statute to repose reason that since the legislature provides the causes of action, the legislature can take them away, stating that there's just no federal or state constitutional right to, to the continued existence of a specific uh, common law cause of action. But it's still an issue to, to, um, you know, to look at and, and see when you're dealing in a specific jurisdiction, um, you know, what the, uh, what the constitutionality issue, whether it's been resolved there one way or the other. So, so let's look a bit about the history of these things, the statutes of repose. Statutes of repose were first employed in the context of architects, engineers, and contractors in the 1950s. So statutes uh, exist in the vast majority of states, including the District of Columbia, but uh, repose statutes are, are not limited to construction. They can be found in medical malpractice claims, asbestos claims, product liability cases. Of course, our, our focus here, the surety industry, is, is on the repose statutes related to construction. But they're out there. They, they, they apply to a lot of different circumstances. The, the catalyst for enacting such statutes in, in many jurisdictions was the uh, quote-unquote dramatic expansion uh, in the liability of contractors, architects, and engineers, and developers, resulting from three primary developments in the law. First was the elimination or erosion of the privity of contract doctrine as a defense. And privity of contract basically, you know, would, would say that if you're a subcontractor, you you don't have you don't have a direct contractual relationship with the owner, and therefore you could not sue the owner directly. Well, many states started abolishing that or eroding it down to the point where you know it, it basically no longer existed in some jurisdictions. Second um, reason uh, driving statutes of repose was the declining recognition of the completed and accepted rule. Uh, third was the application and development of the discovery rule to state statutes of limitations. So taken together, these three legal developments meant that architects, engineers, contractors, and others involved in construction could potentially be held, you know, indefinitely liable for property damage and personal injury caused by their work. Thus, uh, these groups turn to state legislatures for protection. The possibility that seemingly endless liability would deter such professionals from experimenting with new materials, designs, or procedures spurred the state legislatures into action. I'm sure there was uh, some measure of con campaign contributions and, uh, you know, <laughs> other things like that driving the legislatures, but, you know, who knows? Uh, the, the example, the, the revisor's note to Maryland statute of repose indicates that the purpose of the statute was to impose a limit on the expansion of liability for professionals involved in making improvements to real property. The statute seeks to strike a balance between encouraging innovation in the construction industry and ensuring public safety. Uh, that's right there in the revisor's note to, this, to the Maryland statute of repose. Not sure I'm a big fan of experimenting in construction projects, but you know, innovation, experimenting, whatever. Uh, 
All right. So, so you, you know, you've got uh, a case, you've got a statute of repose that's involved. What are some of the issues that you need to be aware of? Uh, first, let's look at accrual. Uh, as we, we've noted, accrual under a statute of repose is not the same as accrual under a statute of limitations. In a repose statute, accrual refers to the beginning of the period of the repose. It has no relationship to the cause of action. The statute of repose has no regard for whether a cause of action exists or not. Many statutes of repose uh, start the repose period when the improvement to the property is ready for its intended use or at substantial completion. For example, uh, the Maryland statute of repose provides, uh, quote, except as provided by this section, a cause of action for damages does not accrue and a person may not seek contribution or indemnity from any architect, professional engineer, or contractor for damages incurred when wrongful death, personal injury, or injury to real or personal property resulting from the defective and unsafe condition of an improvement to real property occurs more than 10 years after the date the entire improvement first became available for its intended use. So that's the Maryland statute of repose uh, for construction. The first became available for intended use language, of course, echoes the typical definition of substantial completion. Indeed, um, the Maryland courts have interpreted the phrase as meaning uh, the entire improvement must only be substantially complete or completed to such a, a degree that it's capable of being used in its intended manner. Construction or installation of the entire improvement need not be totally or 100% completed for the entire improvement to be considered first available for its intended use. Now, looking at another statute, the Alabama statute of repose provides, uh, quote, no relief can be granted or any, on any cause of action which accrues or would have accrued more than 13 years after the substantial completion of construction of the improvement on or to the real property and any right of action which accrues or would have accrued more than 13 years thereafter is barred. So the, the Alabama code expressly used substantial completion as the trigger. The substantial completion is generally defined as, quote, the stage in the progress of the work when the work or designated portion thereof is sufficiently complete in accordance with the contract documents so that the owner can occupy or utilize the work for its intended use, unquote. Ordinarily, the date of substantial completion is a question of fact as to whether the work truly can be put to its intended use. The Maryland courts uh, have looked to such factual issues as when the uh, use and occupancy permits were issued or when um, actual use began and when substantial completion uh, certificates have been issued by the project architect, et cetera. Uh, however, some courts will, will defer to the terms of the party's contract to determine the definition of substantial completion. For example, uh, in one case, the court looked at a contract that provided, quote, the architect shall conduct inspections to determine the dates of substantial completion and final completion and shall issue a final certificate for payment. So this language uh, obviously links the date of completion uh, to the issuance of the architect's certificate. Other courts have, have held that substantial completion is the date of the issuance of the, of the certificate of substantial completion, and no further factual inquiry is even required. It's just, uh, you know, that's a bright line rule in some states. M most courts agree that substantial completion uh, does not require exact performance of every detail, Rather, the test to be applied is one of function and uh, is concerned with whether the owner can make use of the work as intended. 
uh, as is to be expected, of course, the, the trigger point for the starting of the repose period can be the subject of uh, many disputes. One side, of course, will be trying to, to start the trigger as early as possible, and the, the other side will be trying to push the trigger point out as far as possible so that the date uh, it filed suit will fall within that period. Uh, but the takeaway here is that each statute of repose will have its own trigger to start the period of repose, and you will need to figure out what that statute requires and then marshal the facts and information to determine when the trigger date was uh, was so that you'll have a bright line for the end of the repose period and the applicable bar date. So the next uh, question that arises is, can the statute of repose be waived? Um, and the majority view holds the statute of repose cannot be waived because of its substantive nature. Uh, the statute of repose is generally uh, not considered to be an affirmative defense, and therefore the failure to plead it is, is, um, is an, as an affirmative defense is not a bar to raising the issue. A minority of jurisdictions adhere to the rule that statutes of repose, like statutes of limitation, are affirmative defenses that are subject to the waiver doctrine. As one leading decision uh, adopting the majority view explained, the statute of repose is a substantive provision which may not be waived because the time limit expressly qualifies the right which the statute creates. You should um, check your applicable civil rules on this issue because each court uh, may define what it considers to be affirmative defenses and you'll have to proceed accordingly. Of course, the best practice with this issue is to raise any defense early and often uh, and a statute of repose defense uh, is, is no, no different. Uh, the next question is, uh, you know, does the discovery rule apply to the statute of repose? You know, in the past, the limitations typically began to run from the date of the alleged breach or wrong, even if the injury, you know, had not been discovered. The discovery rule was designed to ameliorate the harshness of the old rule, and it delays the accrual of a cause of action until the plaintiff ascertains or through the exercise of reasonable care and diligence should have ascertained the nature of the cause of the injury. However, uh, the courts have recognized that legislatures enacted the statute of repose in part to bar the discovery rule's applicability to causes of action for injuries, you know, arising to, uh, to property. Thus, the statutes of repose uh, run for a statutorily determined period of time after a definitely established event independent of any discovery of any injury. As one court noted, quote, to apply the discovery rule would be to thwart the entire purpose of the statute of repose, unquote. Accordingly, it's generally recognized that the discovery rule does not apply to a statute of repose. All right, so you're, you're looking at uh, the statute of repose as a possible defense, and there are several issues uh, to be aware of. The first, you know, is the scope of the statute. Because of the wording of the particular statute, there could be issues about what causes of action are covered. Some statutes only apply to tort claims. Some only apply to contract-based claims. Some are broad and apply to everything. Uh, for example, in Maryland, the, the, the repose statute that I read to you early talks, earlier talks about wrongful death, personal injury, injury to real personal property resulting from the, you know, unsafe defective condition. And, and some, play, some plaintiffs here in Maryland have argued that such language, you know, was limited to tort causes of action. However, the Maryland courts have held that the repose statute applies not only to negligence, strict liability claims, other tort claims, 
but the contract and breach of warranty claims as well. Uh, conversely, in the District of Columbia, the statute of repose has been held not to apply to contract actions. In, uh, in Arizona, for example, the repose statute specifically refers to an action or arbitration based in contract. So obviously, sureties and their principles will be primarily concerned with contract-related causes of action, breach of contract, breach of warranty, et cetera. So initially, it is important to determine the scope of the coverage of the applicable statute of repose. There's also a question that gets raised in, in some courts is, what is the nature of an indemnity claim? You know, so you've got you've got a contract with an indemnity provision in it, and some courts say that that's not that's not a a claim arising out of faulty construction. It's an economic claim that relates to uh, reimbursement of, of of money spent. And so there's issues in the courts you'll see back and forth over. You know, some will will apply to indemnity, some won't. Maryland statute gets rid of that issue by by saying expressly. That it applies to contribution and indemnity. So, but just be aware that that could be an issue. Another issue to consider, you know, is who the statute of repose covers. And in and uh, in, in, in one statute, the language referred to quote unquote contractors. And the question was raised as to whether the term contractor included subcontractors. Um, in order to implement the legislative purpose of the statute of repose, the court interpreted the meaning of contractor broadly to include subcontractors. But there could be issues with other tiers, suppliers, manufacturers, and whether they fall within the protection of the statute. Again, it's important to determine if it's a, the specific language of the statute of repose and whether it covers the principle. Another issue that, that can come up is, is um, whether the statute of repose will bar the claim of a governmental agency. So that doctrine of nullum tempus occurrit regi, which uh, translated means time does not run against the sovereign, is an ancient doctrine that exempts uh, certain governmental bodies from time bar defenses, uh, such as limitations and latches. Some courts, um, you know, recognizing the differences, uh, have have found that <coughs> excuse me, that nullum tempus uh, will not uh, apply to repose statutes and. Other courts have gone the opposite direction and, and hold that it does. Uh, so looks like we are uh, out of time here at uh, 12.59. So I'm going to have to switch over to the closing. And uh, before I open up uh, the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know that the next edition of Surety Today will be on Monday, November 14th at 12.30, of course. Some upcoming events in the surety world, the National Bond Claims Association will hold its annual meeting in Bowling Green, Florida in uh, two days, October 12th through the 14th. So if you're going, you better get on it. Uh, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will hold its lunch meeting in Philadelphia on November 16th. And the speaker will be uh, our good friend, Mike Saba with the Guardian Group. And he'll be talking about the subject of subcontractor default insurance. The uh, Atlanta Surety Claims Association will hold its uh, luncheon on November 17th at uh, 2020. I don't have a location. Oh, it's at the Meggianos there. Uh, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will hold its annual holiday party on December 7th, 2022. Um, it's going to be at a new place. And it's called Fergie's Bar, I think, uh, in Philly. And there's going to be a nice uh, giveaway gift there. So if you're attending that, you'll get the gift. 
So thank you to uh, everyone for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.